I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel. This is a podcast episode brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's Parsha podcast. This series on Shemot explores personalities, 19th and 20th century commentators, and how their commentaries are informed and shaped by the worlds in which they lived. Today's episode is dedicated by Sarah Averick and Jose Rosenfeld in honor of their children. They honor and thank Batia and Nehemia Rosenfeld, who are teaching and inspiring the Jewish communities of Nashville, Tennessee, and honor and thank their sons-in-laws, Malachi, Ezra, and Yotam, who have been mobilized in Simchat Torah, and their daughters, Elisheva, Vital, and Yehudit, who have been sustaining their families on the home front, praying for the immediate return of all the hostages and the missing, and that our soldiers and security forces complete their missions and return to us whole in body and soul. Thank you for your generosity. Parshat Bo opens with the final three plagues, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn, and includes all of the formative instructions for the moments of Exodus, the Pesach sacrifice, the redemption of the animal and human firstborn, and how this mitzvah intertwines with the plague of the firstborn. The Parsha is unusually occupied with setting the tone for how Pesach will be remembered in the future. It spends far less time recording the events as they happened in Pesach Mitzrayim, and much more detailing how they should be commemorated in the future for Pesach. One senses that the Parsha is quite self-aware regarding how formative these events will be for the current and particularly for the future generations. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Rashad Beit Midrash of Matan and its academic director, Dr. Yael Ziegler, the author of multiple Tanakh commentaries. Yael is also a senior lecturer at Herzog College. Yael, it's a pleasure to have you back here. Hi, Yosefa. It's a pleasure to be back. So we are going to take a little bit of a twist on the theme uh, of the, the stated theme of this uh, of this series. And Yael and I actually wanted to speak about a particular personality within the Parsha, uh, because this opportunity really won't return. And that's the personality of Paro himself, of the of the king, the pharaoh of, of Mitzrayim. So Yael, why don't we sort of jump into this idea of what the name Paro means and and why why is he called that in this in this uh, series of of stories and events. Okay, so he's actually referred to in two ways in the story. He's referred to as Melech Mitzrayim. Okay, so he's the king of Egypt. And he's also referred to as the Pharaoh. Um, Paro is not a proper name, right? Something that we think when we're little kids, we call him Paro. We think that's his proper name. But of course, uh, Paro is, it's a reference to his position, right? It's, it's made, a, it's a compound Egyptian word, par and o, which means great house. It's actually a reference to the palace. But at some point uh, during the course of the history of ancient Egypt, it became a reference to the king himself. Like we might say, the White House says, right? And we know that we're not talking about a house speaking. We know that we're talking about the uh, position of the presidency. So it's a similar kind of thing. Uh, Paro is a reference to his uh, to the palace, but it's also a reference to the king. What's interesting in the Paro story is that even though the, the, the Tanakh almost always refers to him as Paro, I mean, Melech Mitzrayim only comes up maybe like 14 times, and the name Paro is well over 100 times within the story. So most of the time he's referenced as Paro, but he actually never gets a proper name, which is, which is interesting because in other stories, especially later stories, Paro is going to be linked to his proper name. So we have Paro like Paro Nacho, or right, exactly. or Paro Nacho, or Paro or yeah. Tirhaka, or and you know, and those those Paros we can actually identify 
uh, because we, we know a great deal about ancient Egyptian uh, pharaohs. But one of the confounding parts of our story is that we can't actually date our story with any degree of certainty because we don't know the name of this paro. And, and it seems as though really the Tanakh deliberately erases his name, which, which if, if in fact this is a conscious attempt to erase Paro's name, that's a very significant thing to do. We have this general question regarding, which is not our topic for today, but the historicity of the story of Exodus, right? So on one hand, the, while the name Paro is is a is a name, it kind of keeps him anonymous. And in that regard, it brings me to this general question of what is the purpose of anonymity in Tanakh, meaning sometimes it represents the idea that this is a an ongoing situation. It's certainly here not the case that he's not important, right? He's a particularly important guy. It, it may be perhaps suggesting that he's not as important as he thinks. I mean, he doesn't deserve a first name. Uh, and, and I think also it's maybe speaking to like the everlasting element of this story of that this paro, it doesn't matter which paro he really was because we're going to keep living the story of the Exodus for generations. I don't know if that's sort of maybe, those are just some ideas that come up as you speak about this, this lack of, of specific pronoun. Yeah, well, I mean, I think all of those things are true. I also think that it doesn't really matter who this paro is because he's a representative of a certain kind of tyranny, a certain kind of despotism that is very much present in, I would say, pretty much all monarchical societies, but certainly Egypt, which is really a society that is very much, uh, very much revolves around this one figure. I mean, Martin Buber famously described the hierarchy of Egyptian society as a pyramid, right, where the, the paro is at the top, and all of the citizens of Egypt are, are under him, are, are these underlings that, that really live to serve him. But, but I think what's, what's even more significant is, is what you said, which is that you know, we often talk about the, the meaning and the idea behind anonymous characters. Uh, in Tanakh. And certainly at the beginning of the Shemot story, we have a great deal of figures who are not named, right? Especially in the story of Moshe's birth, right? And, and it's particularly ironic in a book that starts out the Eilish Shemot, right? These are the names. And so we have a book which starts out with names and very rapidly kind of spirals off into anonymity. And what we often talk about is that this is the condition of slavery, right? This is what happens when you enslave people and you take away their identity and you take away their purpose. Um, but that only, I think, makes it more peculiar that this paro doesn't have a name. Because if there's anybody in this society who has a name, if there's one person in Egyptian society who should have a name or, or should retain their name, it would be, it would be paro. Um, and, and therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that it, this is a very deliberate attempt to erase um, this paro. And I, I think that, that the idea is similar to what I think you were, um, the direction that you were going in, which is that there's this notion that this paro who has put himself at the, at the helm of society and even deified himself, right, turned himself into a deity and, and, and puts great stock into his name, right? He's very, um, Paros are very, uh, very interested in their name. They carve their name in these, you know, in these kind of oval figures that the French archaeologists called a cartouche, right? And they would carve their name into them and oftentimes follow it with all sorts of hieroglyphics talking about how the king will be eternal and, you know, and will live forever. And by erasing his name, there's this sense that we have erased his 
his power, his identity, his, his, um, his, his impact, right? Who he is in the world. And, and, and the flip side, of course, is that throughout the Shemot story, we have the establishment of God's name, right? Already starting from the, the burning bush, right? Starting from, from Moshe's encounter with God, where he says to God, you know, uh, Moshe says to God, when the people say to me, Amruli mashmo, what is his name? Ma'omarlehem, right? What should I say to them? And so, and, and then God, you know, introduces himself to Moshe, for Moshe to bring to the people, but also later in Parshat Ve'era, right? Right? I, I appeared to the forefathers <clears throat> with one name, but I never told them the Shem Havaya. I never told them my, my real name, right? And, and then he introduces himself over and over and over. Ani Hashem, Ani Hashem, Ani Hashem. And of course, in next week's Parsha, at the denouement of the story, right? In Shirat Hayam, where, where the people proclaim Hashem Ish Milchama. Hashem Shmo, right? God is his name. So there's this kind of, I think, shift of, of, of perception that's going on here, where human beings, we're told, can carve their name into as many buildings as they want. But ultimately, their name, their reputation, their identity, their sense of self, it is, you know, it's negligible compared to God's impact on the world. And of course, you know, the whole story to some degree is, um, is, is casting doubts on the question as to whether or not a human being, um, you know, can in any way function in any sort of, um, in any sort of powerful way w without relying on God, right? So I think that, that the name is, is a very significant element here. I think it reminds me of, of two things. One is very much that what we would call like the ancient polemic of calling them the Mi'orota Hagdolim. We have the the sun and the moon, but they don't get the name sun and moon because they were also worshipped in the in the ancient Near East. And so we have that similar idea here, right? Again, that Paro isn't going to get that name. We're going to emphasize the, uh, the, the name of God here. I'll also just state one other thing, which I learned in preparation for this podcast. I'm not particularly holding in the Egyptian uh, uh, Egyptian cultural knowledge, but the idea that not only did did the Perot have sort of five different names that that he was referred to, as you said, and that were some of them were engraved in this cartouche, but he also was thought to have this role. Now he wasn't the god. Okay, that's not that's not true. But he was thought to be the mediator, meaning he kept the world in balance. He was the mediator between, correct me if I'm wrong, because you know more about this, but he was the mediator between the gods and the people, which also just speaks to this like unbelievably strong focal point. And 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 this one article that I saw, it spoke about in the story of Paro and the story of Breshit, uh, when it came to Abraham, that things were off and he realized that things were off and he immediately had to give back this woman who he had taken accidentally, uh, or again, without his knowing the full story, because he he was in charge of keeping things in balance. He couldn't afford to let the, I don't know if it was the energy or whatever it was in Mitzrayim be, be off balance. And so it's like literally, literally the opposite approach uh, in many, or sort of very, very different approach to what we have in our belief system, right? Of that there is no intermediate that is in charge of keeping the world in balance that is solely the 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 responsibility and the leadership of God. So I'm just sort of highlighting those additional points. Um, and it really does throw me back to those earlier polemics sort of that you can read in the beginning of Breshit of, you know, you're not you're not going to have a name because you, you get way too much power in the ancient world. And we want to make sure that we sort of bring you down a little bit. 
Well, I'll add one more thing to that. I mean, I can't say that I fully understand Egyptian religion. I think it's extremely complex. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Paro himself has some kind of deified status. But I will add one more point, and that is that he, um, many of the names of the pharaohs are theophoric in that they're a compound name that is connected to a god's name. Um, and oftentimes that theophoric name um, has a Moshe in it. Okay, so Ra Moses, Tut Moses, Ach Moses. And all of those are names of God, gods where Moshe means either to be born or, you know, the child of, right? So we have, you know, um, Ra is born in him or Ra birthed him, right? You know, Tut is born in him. He becomes this kind of manifestation of a god. Um, and, and of course, what's wonderful about that is that the greatest leader of Am Yisrael in all of Tanakh is born Moses, right? Moshe. He's born without any um, deified status, without any uh, sort of, I don't know, biological link to a god. He's just born. He's just born. He's born a human being to human beings. He is a great human, and he achieves, I think, a very strong, perhaps the, the, the most um, amazing, the most magnificent uh, relationship that we could imagine with God, right? You know, standing on Har Sinai, panim el panim, kasher yidaber ish el re'ehu, but a God he is not, right? And, and I think that that also is something that sort of is con contrast with what we know about the names of, um, of, of paros, of Egyptian kings. I, I, maybe this is sort of to belabor a point that's, that's obvious, but I guess something that I'm being inspired by at the moment from that point, and by the way, also Kasuto, I think he wasn't the first, but one of the first who said, Moshe just means son, right? It's like calling your kid Ben. That's how he, he, uh, he understands the name Moshe. But the ancient world for many, many understandable reasons, underestimated the potential that human beings had. And so you only could be something that was uh, special or worthy of mention if you if you ha if you were a god, right? If you were on some sort of elevated status, and one of the greatest revolutions that the Torah that the Torah creates is by stating that everybody has Telem Elokim in them, meaning it's not some sort of special status. We also have some sort of internal hierarchy. That's for another conversation, maybe in Sefer Vayikra. But but that every single person has that potential because we all have a piece of God in us. But on our own merit, we can also connect with God, and so it's just a totally different imagining of. Of the relationship between the human and the divine and that it's not that we have to elevate a human to be like a God, but that God actually puts himself in all of us and that we then as humans imbued with that unique spirit can then can then create a relationship with God. I agree with you. I think one of the great chidushim of the Tanakh and of Judaism is what I would call gadlut adam, the, the greatness of human beings. I think that Tzalem Elohim is saying to us, very much what you said, which is that you don't have to turn into a god. There was this idea that human beings could become gods, could be demigods in all sorts of ancient cultures. And what the Torah is saying is 
you know, stay in your lane, right? You're a human and you're, you could be great and you could attain great spirituality with a lot of work, of course, right? I just want to also add in there, Yael, that the promise that the Nachash says to Adam and Chava is v'item ke'eluhim, meaning that is of the most ancient desires, is that we will become greater than we are. But even if we read it even more literally here, that we will become like a God, and God very clearly says no, right? You are not to do that. You are not to elevate yourself above that status. You are to remain as, as human. I love that you just said that, because who is it that says, Ve'idem ke'elohim, um, it's the Nachash who says it to Chava, and the Nachash is a symbol of Egypt. Right? I think that in the Gan Eden story, there's a lot mm, of Egypt that is, that is going on there. There's the, the, the Eitz Hadat, there's the Eitz HaChayim. There's the notion that we can somehow overcome our mortality and live forever, which is certainly something very, very, very prominent in Egyptian ancient thought. There's this idea that you can become a deity. And, you know, of course, the, in general, I think that, you know, that, that the Nachash is a, a negative symbol that becomes eventually the symbol of Egypt, right? I mean, you know, um, not just it, because we throw down the staff or, you know, Moshe throws down the staff and it becomes a snake, but also in Yirmiyal Perak Memvav, which I, I believe is the Haftarah for Parshat Bo, right? It says, um, right, Kola Kanachash Yelech. When we're talking about Egypt, right? Her 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 voice goes like a you know moves like a like, like a snake, right? So the the snake becomes a symbol of Egypt. So that's also I think a very strong point. I wanted to comment uh, uh, on something you said before, which is before you cited Kasuto talking about the um, saying that Moshe means sun. But since this Sefer's podcast is about 19th century personalities, so I would add that the Nitziv right, who, who already lives after a time that hieroglyphics have been deciphered and the knowledge is out there, the Nitziv actually says, well, I know that in ancient, ancient Egyptian, Moshe means sun, right? So he may be, I think, the first traditional, you know, non-academic Jewish source that I don't, I don't know if he's the first one to use ancient Egyptian, but he's the earliest one that I know about that actually introduces it into his uh, Parshanut. Um, and he specifically says it with regard to Moshe. So that's just, you know, just to add in a little piece that can be uh, connect to the theme. So we've addressed the name of Paro, essentially why he doesn't uh, have a name. I want to make one final point about, about Paro. As we said, he is really, really the central figure in the Yitzhak Yitzrayim story. So that in the first 15 chapters of Sefer Shemot, he appears well over a hundred times, right? And he, you know, the whole story kind of revol revolves around him, around his his cruelty, his his obstinance, his refusal to, um, and, and his deception also, his refusal to listen to God's messages and, and his, you know, always saying, okay, yeah, I'll do that, and then changing his mind, right? So, so Paro is really very much the dominant figure, but what's extraordinary is that after Perk Tetvav, he only appears again in Sefer Shmot when Yitro comes to visit Moshe at Har Elohim, and there he says, I'm so happy that God saved you, you know, miyad Mitzrayim, miyad Paro, right? I, I'm so happy that God saved you from, from the hands of Paro, and there Paro appears three times in that chapter, and never again 
in the entire rest of the book of Shavuot. So that two-thirds of the book of Shavuot is basically completely absent of Paro. He just dissolves. He is no longer important. He was very, very important. He, you know, overshadows the story. And then he just, he's just erased. Now, of course, we mention him, you know, but, you know, in, in, in so many aspects of our yearly, uh, you know, of our yearly commemoration of the story. It's not as though we don't regard Paro as, a, as an important figure of, of our backdrop, right? But that's where he stays. He stays in our back, backdrop. The Israel, meaning that's where, you know, I mean, I, I would say similar about other enemies that we've had throughout the course of Jewish history. It's not that they don't remain as these figures that are, are, are part of the vile nature of, you know, human beings and what human beings can do to each other, but that ultimately their power fades. I mean, the obvious example being Hitler, right? Because he was, um, and, and he will always be, I think, a symbol of everything that's, that's bad, everything that's evil. But he's gone, and, and gone in a, in a very sweeping way. And the same thing we see with regard to, to Paro. Yeah, I think that there's a reality there about people who place power as the overarching goal of their life, that once you don't have it, you no longer exist. Uh, I'm sorry to use a metaphor, but I know you'll appreciate it. It's a little bit like how in the stories of Harry Potter, Voldemort can't just die. He actually dissipates into thin air, meaning this is not just a theme. It's not a literary trope. It's this concept that when your entire life's goal is to rule over others, when you no longer possess that rule, you no longer exist because you've negated the other aspects of your humanity. So I think that there's a really, really deep point there that's laid in this sort of disappearance of the big Paro who we meet at the beginning and so prominent. Yeah. So, Yael, why don't we talk a little bit about the way that Paro appears in the beginning of the stories. To me, he kind of a little bit, I get that we get, we become really numerous and, and there may be something threatening about us, but we're really this, we're this, we're the other, we're these non-native peoples. It's hard for me to really imagine that we were that big of a threat, but all of a sudden we get like this very paranoid Paro who's, who's very nervous about the fact that we're going to sort of overtake him and join up with his enemies. So let's talk a little bit about that scene. There's something kind of puzzling about the way the whole story opens. And then we get into the slave room, we kind of forget about the opening piece, but where, where does that come from? Yeah, it's, what I think is really interesting about this piece is that it starts out before, um, you know, before the king says, let's plot against these, these, these uh, numerous Israelites, <clears throat> the Pesach tells us, Asher lo yada et Yosef, right? Asher lo yada et Yosef, this new king gets up over Egypt who didn't know Yosef. What, what does Yosef have to do with anything here? It's almost as though that gratitude towards Yosef, that kind of, you know, um, when he, the, the fact that he owed Yosef, it, it's, been, it's been gnawing away at, at Egypt for all these years. And as soon as he has the opportunity to turn his people against Yosef so that we no longer have to have any gratitude Towards, towards this figure who, who saved Egypt, right? So as soon as he has the opportunity to you know, pull, pull, pull away from Yosef and, and, and turn the people against him, it's almost as though this resentment 
has been stewing in Egypt for all these years. And Paro doesn't really have too much trouble convincing the people that Yosef is the other, and therefore Israel is the other. And you know, by the end of of the story, you know, it's it's not even by the end of the story. As Parak Aleph goes on, all of Egypt is co-opted into this hatred, into this ha- hatred, which seems to start from. Um, from the original gratitude that they that they owed Yosef, it seems to start from all the good that Yosef did. I will say that while time moves quickly in these chapters, I think though it is important to notice that just like another kind of solution that we know from modern history, there were a few stages in Paro's plan. Meaning, first he tries to deal with quote unquote you know the issue by putting them into slavery, and then he tries to start killing them in a private kind of way, right? Get those midwives, sort of like a private op, uh, only kill some of them. And and then and then we see the continuation, right? The more intensity, uh, sorry, intensifying of the work. There's also a very interesting play there, again, very similar to the concept of the Gestapo, where some of these some of these police forces are clearly Jewish police forces. And so he starts employing the, our, our people against us. And, and then he calls for something that's much greater. So while, the t- while time moves kind of quickly, there are multiple stages to the way that Paro tries to deal with us. And, we, and we're told in the Psukim, it's because the initial efforts didn't work, right? The more we tried to work as hard, the more we were resilient, right? And that's, again, something, unfortunately, that we're familiar with when, from the current reality, right? Push us to our edge, and we'll discover that we have a new edge and that we can actually outperform what we did before. So there are a number of stages in his plan. Right. Well, also, I think success breeds more resentment. You know, the Ramban famously talks about these stages and, and basically explains that um, Paro was, he, he was slowly but surely um, uh, ensuring that the people would be on his side. Because you can't just stand up and say, okay, now yes, I'm going to kill correct. all these people. That there's yeah. an incremental kind of movement towards the ability to convince um, the, the Egyptians that these people who yesterday were their neighbors, and not only their neighbors, you know, people who they had gratitude towards because they were helpful in society. So to convince them that in fact they're not helpful to society, but they're undermining society, that takes a certain kind of gradual, um, you know, almost um, uh, pre-planned kind of, you know, Apara has a plan here, and the plan is, is slowly but surely to sow hatred and to continue to breed resentment so that he can co-opt his nation into turning uh, Israel into the into the evil enemy. This, of course, I think, to some degree, echoes with many different experiences that Israel had throughout their history. And the other point that I think that is very famously um, made here is that Paro is the one that turns Israel into a nation, and that Israel becomes a nation on the backdrop of um, of this hatred that surrounds it. I mean, that sounds very negative, but certainly we see that also in Megillat Esther, right? So then in Megillat Esther, the first two chapters of the Megillat, there's there's one Jew in, Shusha, in Shushan, right? It's just Mordechai. Everybody else seems very much have, to have faded in the background until Haman comes along and says, Yeshno amechad mefuzar mefarad beinamim. There's this one nation out there. And suddenly he, through his... Uh, hatred and through his evil policies t- turns Am Yisrael, reminds Am Yisrael that they're a nation. And, and here, I think this is really the beginning of nationhood. So I don't know, that might sound a little bit negative, but that certainly is part of the story um, here, here in Egypt. 
I mean, it's negative veil, but it's the reality. Again, it's the exact reality that we're seeing now is that we were, oh, we remember that we're all bound to each other when somebody decides that they want to hate us as a group. It's interesting also because it doesn't seem like in the world today people have to work very hard to sow the hatred. It sort of seems to be right there in the in in the in the strings of the cloth. But I, I think that it's also reminding me, you know, when we speak about this idea of that 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 kind of hatred, which again, can we can we call it a paranoia? Do like do you think that there's a justification for for Pro's concerns here? Well, I mean, let, let's put it this way. Uh, even if Paro doesn't believe it, what I think is remarkable is what people are willing to believe. The fact that Paro says to his people, you know, um, uh, he says, um, right? that, that nation of Israel, they are uh, greater and more powerful than us, which is, it, it's clearly hyperbolic, right? I mean, there's... there's yeah, it has but, to be. Just numbers-wise, it has to be. Yeah, but the fact that he can convince um, his people that uh, Am Yisrael is this encroaching threat, right? You know, you, you ask any anti-Semite around the world, how many... Jews are there, right? And they will grossly exaggerate the figures. And, and people are willing to believe all sorts of, I think, um, things that are presented to them when you have whipped them up into a state of resentment and hatred. And the hatred in this story largely seems predicated on the success of, of Am Yisrael, not just their fertility and their, um, and you know, the fact that, that, that they're growing in number and the fact that they're very successful, but also what we said before about Yosef, that Yosef rises to great prominence and becomes a figure that Egypt depended on uh, to, to really kind of, you know, lead them out of the famine. And, and, and all of this enables people to believe all sorts of of, of exaggerated things that really shouldn't be so believable. But, but I don't want to forget, though, to, to say that there are always, always exceptional figures in a society, right? And, and, and we can't forget the midwives, and we can't forget Paro's own daughter, who, uh, you know, who acts against him on the basis of her own moral compunctions, right? And that, of course, becomes, I think, the spark of hope that enables Moshe to be born. Moshe couldn't be born without this. And then enables, uh, I think, all societies to emerge from that kind of, you know, maw of hatred and, and, and evil that societies can oftentimes spiral into. But these exceptional figures, they're, they're part of, of Gadluta Adam. They're part of what's great about humans. Uh, you know, the fact that some people can always emerge good with good. Yeah. I, I, so two thoughts. First, a negative one, and then I'll echo your positive one, which is that the the negative aspect of Perot and his and his leadership is is there's a very, very important midrash. I, usually, I teach it in the context of Megillah to stare. Um, and the Midrash basically parallels some some pretty negative figures. Uh, and it says, I'll just read a few lines of it. Right? Cursed are those uh, those wicked people who are who are constantly engaged in trying to sort of create bad or do bad to Am Yisrael. Um, and every one of them, everybody has like their own idea of what they think is a good idea, how to get rid of us. It starts first with... Uh, 
um, Esav. Esav says Cain was a shote. Cain was a was an ignoramus, right? He thought if he only kills one brother, so he'll be able to rule. But he forgets. He forgets that his parents could have more children still. So he says, "I'll try, right? I'll, I'll try and get rid of also my father and my brother. We'll leave it aside for now." And then it says, "Paro said, oh, Esav was such a was was a was an idiot essentially. He says, right? He thought that it would be enough uh, that it would be enough just to kill members of his own family in order to be able to rule." And, and Paro says, Mapitom, I have to kill all of the baby boys. And then Haman comes and says, right, Paro, my goodness, you missed the boat. How could you think that? If, how do you think if you only kill half the population? What do you mean? You'll have all the women there. I'll just say on the side of Paro that obviously Paro thought that the women would marry into Egyptian families and so he wouldn't have to worry about them. But Haman says, no, I have to kill everybody, right? Right, all of, all of the entire people. And then it goes on to later, the Gogu Magog. But the point being that, you know, every leader is sort of trying to outdo, right? You could, again, you could put, you know, Hitler right into that Midrash there, of course. So that Midrash is always, I think, very, very uh, important because it remember it reminds us to align these rulers with one another. These are, they're not just, it's not just like an evil. We have other negative figures in Tanakh, but these are figures who were looking to, to decimate, to kill, to eradicate in a way that was very different than just a regular, you know, military threat that we had in many other stories of Tanakh. And the other piece that I just wanted to respond with, which is that when you speak about figures of hope in society, uh, again, echoing obviously the Midrash as well, but there's a very clear statement here about men and women in, in this story without even the help of the Midrash, right? We have this idea that in a society that is lost in a world of tyranny and power, and, and, and again, they were the men that were in power then, and that would be true for many, 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 many more years even after the story, those who would be able to save the world with a degree of softness and a concept that every single human life is, 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 need, is worth remaining in this world are the women in the story. And so while I think there are many aspects of why they're Nashim Tzidkaniyot, and Chazal have pointed to multiple models within the story, on a very basic level, it is the women who see the significance of life and the men here who are willing to throw it out, Paro specifically, are willing to throw it out the window for the sake of their own power. Well, I would relate that also to compassion, right? The word for compassion, rachamim, comes from the rechem, right? Those two words, the, the womb, those two words are etymologically related. And so this notion that it doesn't mean that anybody who has a womb is compassionate, but it means that the notion that we bring life into the world and that we are looking towards the future, uh, it, it's, it's what inspires all of humanity. It's what should inspire all of humanity to build a just and, and compassionate world. I, I came across a midrash um, with regard to Amalek that I think is very relevant uh, both in this discussion and maybe for some of the things that are happening today. Um, this midrash says, it, it, it pays attention to the fact that in all of the different battles with Amalek, whether we're talking about, you know, with Yahushua or we're talking about with Shaul or we're talking about with David in Shmuel Alef, Paraklamed in Siklag, or we're talking about Megillat Esther with Haman Ha'agagi, the Midrash says, all of these battles take place tomorrow. Vayhimi mochorat, limachar e'ese kidvar hamelech. Machar, 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 tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And one of the things that I think that is extraordinary in this Midrash, and the Midrash doesn't spell it out, but I think that it seems to me to be the obvious idea, which is that the strength of Am Yisrael against Amalek is the belief in tomorrow. It's the, the, the notion that we have a tomorrow, 
that we have that we're building a future for tomorrow that we're building schools and that we're building you know institutions and we're building a society that is designed to create a better tomorrow and those societies like Amalek who don't uh, invest in tomorrow they are naturally going to be weak and 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 we're going to be able to uh, triumph over those societies because we will fight them not tomorrow but for tomorrow so that point I think uh, it goes back to the women which is that the women are more naturally inclined to be looking towards tomorrow I just want to mention the one more midrash since you know we've been talking about a lot of midrashim that that are relating to this um, to this this idea of of what happens in an evil society and how these evil figures um, you know actually uh, how how they influence their constituents so there's a really well-known midrash it appears in several different places in rabbinic literature that when paro was trying to decide what to do with with uh, with Am Yisrael, he calls together his three great advisors, right? And they are Bilam, Iov, and Yitro, who are three, you know, great non-Israelite figures, or generally re regarded as non um, non non-Israelite figures in Tanakh. Um, and the Midrash says, well, Bilam was the one who said to Paro, yeah, yeah, let's kill them all, right? Yeah, genocide, that's the right way to go. And Iov was silent, and that's why Eov suffers, and Yitro gets up and leaves Egypt. He runs away, he wants no part in this. And I think this Midrash is really drawing for us the three different types of responses to evil, right? There are those wow. who are gleeful oh, wow. and celebrating and, and handing out candy and, you know, and going out and saying, wow, this is, this is the greatest thing that we could do in society is to create a society of evil. And then there are those who kind of, you know, close their door and put their heads under the covers and say, okay, but it has nothing to do with me. It's not, you know, it doesn't affect my life. And then there are those who refuse to be part of it and, 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 protest and and you know really come out against it and that those are that's a typology right that's a typology of three different ways of responding to evil and you know the midrash goes on and explains why each one at the end gets what's coming to them but of course you know a word about yitro which is that yitro ultimately is incorporated within the vision of judaism right yitro sets up the judicial infrastructure of Am Yisrael, so that those types of non-Israelites, what we would call today non-Jews, right? Those types of non-Jews non are the ones that we want to partner with in creating a better world, in creating a tomorrow. So if we really look at that Midrash and we look at these, you know, typologies of the way that people respond to evil, and we also understand what our response to them is, based on the Midrash, we really get a sense of Am Yisrael's vision of how we view the outside world, right? The world of, of, of non-Israelites, right? The, the story of Bil'am is one in which, in the end, we have to eradicate Bil'am. He has to be killed because he is the one that is supporting evil and, and, and sowing further evil. And Eov, we have really, you know, we just look at him from the outside and we and we, we feel bad for him, but we don't, you know, we don't really have anything more to do with him. Whereas Yitro, as I said, he becomes our partner for the future. And he is the image of that non-Jew who very much partners with Am Yisrael. I think I'll just conclude by saying that when we, the first Shabbat after 
Simchat Torah, or sorry, the second Shabbat, we, we read about the flood story. And there were a lot of us that were using the narrative of the flood that we felt that very much uh, was describing aptly our emotional space, right? Like one world was, had been destroyed. We're not exactly sure how it's going to be rebuilt, right? Vatimala Eretz Hamas, right? Obviously, there were all of these parallels to what we were experiencing. And I guess I'll just end with with a with a tefillah, honestly, that when we read through these stories now of Itziat Mitzrayim, which is a story of us becoming, or in our case right now, remembering, right, remembering very deeply that we are a nation that is bound together, uh, fighting uh, an evil, right, that, you know, we live in a world we've sort of wanted to uh, blur the lines between good and evil. And, uh, you know, the world has very much reminded us that that is a highly dangerous endeavor to engage in in the world. And there are there are things and elements and, and those who need to be taken out of this world. I guess I hope that we we take this this message of hope with us that while we have to go through that process of getting rid of elements in the world that simply cannot be if we want the world to be able to to sus- be sustained and and become a better place that will also find hope and that will also find partners whom with we can create we can continue creating uh, this this vision of a world that we want to be partners both within us and please God to continue finding partners that are also uh, not only within Am Yisrael because we we can't sustain the world alone uh, we we always need to find our partners so I guess we'll end with that tefillah for today El thank you so much for this conversation sort of trying to understand the figure of Paro within the story and as we've sort of really zoomed out in the world today thank you thank you Yosefa. Thanks for listening to this week's episode from Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please contact the Matan office or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. Please do us and all women's Torah learning a favor and share this episode with all of your friends and family. 